You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. It'll be a miracle if he can explain where he's been all day. I've never even heard of a Tatiana Romanova. Ridiculous, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. Of course, girls do fall in love with pictures of film stars. But not a Russian cipher clerk with a file photo of a British agent. Unless she's uh, mental. Mm. No, it's some sort of trap. Well, obviously it's a trap. And the bait is a cipher machine. A brand new lector. A lector, no less. The CIA's been after one of those for years. Yes, so we. When she contacted Kerim Bey, head of Station T Turkey, and told him she wanted to defect, she said she'd turn it over to us on one condition, that you went out to Istanbul and brought her and the machine back to England. Here's a snapshot Kerim managed to get of her. Well, I don't know too much about cryptography, sir, but uh, I like to could decode their top secret signals. The whole thing's so fantastic, it just could be true. Hmm, that had occurred to me. Besides, the Russians haven't been up to any tricks recently. Well, really, I'm not too busy at the moment, sir. You're booked on the 8.30 plane in the morning. If there's any chance of us getting a lector, we simply must look into it. Suppose when she meets me in the flesh, I don't come up to expectations. Just see that you do. Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole. We're coming to you live. Well, not really live, because you guys know you'll play this whenever you want on your phones, your iPads, or whatever. Uh, But we're here in wonderful Jamaica, hanging out at the beautiful estate here at GoldenEye. It's it's fantastic. I'm so excited. We're going to be talking about, I think everybody knows, we'll be talking about some Bond as we continue that retrospective tonight and uh, before we dive into that just remember that the 602 club is part of the trek fm network you can find all of our shows at itunes.com slash trek fm we're a feature provider there make sure you check everything out uh that trek fm has to offer plus make sure uh, when you're there hit up the 602 club with a star rating and review i really want to say thank you to all of you who have gone in and done that it does uh, wonders for people finding the show when they're searching for different things in itunes so please do that while you're there it just takes a couple of seconds and if you do we'll definitely mention you on the show you can rate us whatever you want write whatever you want we'll make sure to thank you here on the show of course if you want to leave us a voicemail you can go to the sidebar in the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm you can also send us an email go to trek.fm slash contact we've got uh, ourselves on twitter at trek.fm or on facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm we also have our website trek.fm and lastly we've got the babel conference which is our listeners only discussion group go to facebook type babel into the search field on facebook and you will find the group will let you in if you ask to be let in and we'll be excited to have you there well as everybody knows if we're going to be talking about Bond, there's only one man that can do the job, and that's Champion, John Champion. <laughs> you know, I, I thought you were going to say, I, I don't know, I, I thought I was being replaced. I thought maybe Timothy Dalton was coming on as a guest, or um, 
you know, could have been anybody, but I'm, I'm really pleased to be in this company and, uh, and to be able to talk about Bond, one of my other really, you know, true loves and fandom other than Star Trek. I get to talk about Star Trek a lot. So I'm really pleased I get to come on here and talk about Bond, James Bond. Pleasure to be here, Matt. Well, uh, and I'm so glad you could because Timothy had to back out at the oh, last moment. He's and like that. So, yeah, he's uh, like scheduling that. conflicts, you know, yeah. he, he's so busy. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and it's, it's to be expected. It is. So, it is. well, uh, we are obviously going to be uh, continuing the series. So we're going to be looking at from Russia with love, which I'm very excited to, to be doing. And as we continue bond, you know, after Dr. No, they were looking at the books and, and they were trying to figure out which one do we make next. And they had the great idea, you know, let's go with from Russia with love, which was a splendid idea because as the books go, it's one of the best of the bond books. Uh, and so, uh, it just also happens, John, uh, that um, it comes out, the public, uh, in an article about JFK. They're listing some of his favorite books, and this happens to be on the list. Right, right. And um, I don't know if you read that this is actually the last movie that John F. Kennedy saw. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, pretty amazing that, uh, that, that those things all tie together like that. You know, we mentioned last time that... Um, Dr. No, and then uh, it, that had really made a splash when it came out, and um, it was sort of Bond mania ramped up really quickly. Um, and the books, of course, because of JFK's endorsement of those books, those books flew off the shelves. Playboy had been serializing uh, the books, but also short stories by Ian Fleming. So th this had really permeated the pop culture quite a bit. Um, so it, there was sort of no question that this movie was going to be highly anticipated and was going to do well. <laughs> they didn't know how well, but it was going to do well. And I'm impressed that, you know, those early years for the first five Bond films, they all came out just back to back. It was just a breakneck schedule to get these movies out as quickly as they did. That kind of blows me away, too. Well, and that's a really interesting thing because you think about it, you know, the age that Connery is, mm -hmm. you really do want to continue to get these films out as quickly as possible, you know, because you want your star uh, and, and you want him to be in his prime when he's playing this kind of role. And yeah, obviously we'll see. <laughs> There's a big difference between uh, Connery here and then Connery once we get to say Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, just a huge difference in, in the actor. And so these first five Bond films that they do with him, I think um, there's something special about those because they really do, I, I don't know, there's this great sense of continuity for the most part. There's this great connection with each one. Obviously, you can pick anyone out, but if you're watching them in order, it is a lot of fun. And this is also the first time where we're really going to try and do this thing, which is create a blockbuster franchise. Because I was racking my brain, John, trying to think of other films that were big in series. And all I could come up with at the time was the Thin Man series, sure. the uh, the Road movies mm -hmm. with Bob Hope. Uh, and um, I'm, tr I'm trying to 
to think of anything else that would even maybe come close well, to what they're trying to yeah, accomplish. Yeah, I mean, not really franchise movies, but but certainly there were a series of movies with popular people. So if you have like the Abbott and Costello movies or the Marx Brothers movies, yeah, you know, not you necessarily playing the same characters each time, but you're watching those because you're expecting a particular kind of performance or, or kind of formula. Now, I, I will say this, though, and, and this may actually color some of my discussion for today's show. Um, this is actually the first time that I have specifically gone back and studied the Bond movies in order. Now, I've seen all of them, and I've seen all of them multiple times, but you and I had the pleasure of talking about Dr. No some weeks ago, and that really kicked off now this series of watching these in order. And it's a very different experience because... Every other time that I had seen from Russia with Love, I was very much watching it out of context. And there's something about this movie that really jumped out at me that I thought, man, from the very beginning, the producers, the writer, the director, even the stars, they're very aware that they are making a franchise movie. And they are very aware that they are cementing the formula mm, for James definitely. Bond. And there's something a little odd about that, because for all the great things we'll say about this movie, and there are many great things to say about this movie, I think that if another franchise had tried to pull that off now in particular, in, in a post-internet world, and a you know, sort of post-ironic um, uh, uh, pop culture kind of world, I think audiences would not be very happy with that, because they would almost see through it. But there's something about this that Bond has been around for so long, and, and it's one of those things where the, the formulas are so well known, even if you don't know every detail of every Bond movie, you sort of know the formula, so you accept it no matter what. But this was a very different kind of appreciation and kind of criticism from me about watching this movie. Whether it's positive or negative, well, that's that's up for debate, but it was a kind of criticism slash critique that I had about this, where I felt like... After watching Dr. No and really watching them discover who Bond was through that process, now it feels like, wow, that this is a very different approach to Bond to make this movie. Because now it's sort of like they're going through and saying, now we've got to make sure that we check all these things off the list. If you thought Ursula Andres was great and Dr. No, if you thought she was hot, we're going to have three hot Bond girls in this one. <laughs> if you thought if you thought those sets were impressive and Dr. No, we're going to have more impressive sets in this movie. If you thought that the last movie had thrilling adventures and exotic locations, we've got even more adventures in even more locations this time around. And you open the movie with Bond in a tuxedo, even though it's not Bond. You open the movie with Bond in a tuxedo. So you're absolutely cementing the image of the urbane, erudite, gentleman spy in the minds of the audience right from the start. Um, and, and of course, we know that from, you know, the, the very opening frames of that gun barrel logo, that sets the, the, the opening for every other Bond movie after it, except for the reboots. But <laughs> we have talked about those and we can come back around to those again at some point. But um, that's sort of the, the, the overall impression that I had coming away from this. And like I said, it might color some of my commentary as we, as we go along through the show today. 
Well, I think you make a, an, a really interesting point and one that I hadn't thought of. But yes, it is so... It's a it's a really interesting process to watch the films in progression to see how they become. You know, uh, when we talked about Man of Steel back in the day, I was talking about how it was about Superman becoming the icon. He's not the icon yet in that movie. And the same thing really with uh, Bond in Dr. No. He's not the icon yet. You know, this is the first one. They just put him out there. If people like it, this one really is. We're some, like you're saying, we're cementing him as an icon. Like, you want to be this man. Men and women want this man. Yep. You know, uh, and so, and, and when I take into account what you're talking about before the internet age, I kind of think, um, a lot of the criticism that, say, Batman v Superman got this year, uh, that a lot of people level at it with this, that they, they could tell they were trying to make it into a thing. I mean, we already knew it was going to be a right. thing. And, you know, but uh, I, I see exactly what you're saying, and that makes a lot of sense when you look at this. I think what's interesting is is not only, like you said, did they follow the formula, but they continue in this movie to cement it even further by adding some things that will become all new Bond tropes. Like, they weren't in the first movie, but... This one's going to have gadgets. It's going to have Q. It's going to have a pre-title sequence, which we hadn't had mm -hmm. before. It's going to have Blofeld. And at the end of the movie, it's going to have the line that will say, James Bond will return or will continue in. And like it's going to create all of these things that we come to think of as the classic Bondisms. But they don't begin actually till now. Right which is so interesting. Yeah, yeah it, it, there, there's something that's different. You know, if you sort of put your put your producer hat on, you know, you, you sort of put yourself in the shoes of the producers at the time who, you know, we've always said it's so hard to make a movie and, and making a movie that is good, making a movie that is successful, making a movie that resonates with an audience is, is a miracle that that happens anyway. So they pulled it off with Dr. No and they did it for nothing. And then suddenly it's this huge phenomenon. But then you can never redo that moment. You can never recapture that moment where you sort of accidentally create a phenomenon. So going into this second movie, they have to start out from the point of view of saying, wow, we have to figure out now what made that tick. And we've really got to exploit it. <laughs> we've really got to make sure that we nail it down for this one because every other movie and we know that there will be other movies that come after it and not just our own movies but the the parodies and the the sort of copycats that maybe aren't making light of it but the copycat movies will come they're all going to sort of ape that style so we've got to keep cementing our own style reminding the audience who we are and doing better than our last one so to use the word cynical is that has a very negative connotation um, because it sounds like, okay, where they're only doing it for the money. They're not doing it for the artistic value. There is artistic value in this. There's artistic value in all the Bond movies. Um, but it is sort of almost a more cynical point of view to say, well, we did it. Now we've got to sort of reverse engineer it to make sure we know what we're doing for the next one and and keep building on this platform that we've established. Well, and that's what makes this so interesting in history, too, is that this is the first time that someone is trying to do that. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, obviously, we've had the Abbott on Costello films and things like that where we're building off star power and whatnot. 
But this is specifically one series that's going to be continuing and become a franchise of something like this is really a, it is it's the first time that we've tried to do that in Hollywood and it sets the stage for what will come later on down the road in um, the late 70s when Star Wars hits, mm-hmm. you know, and creates a whole new era of what we think of as filmmaking. But Bond really sets the stage for that to be able to happen later. And I think it's it's interesting what you're saying because, yeah, you struggle. Is cynical really the right word to mm-hmm. use? Because really this, you know, Hollywood's a business. It always has been a business. It's always been about making money. So it's somewhere in between... Uh, yeah, that that term of cynical and something else, but I don't know what word we'd call that because I don't know if we're quite there at the point where it's just all about the money. I, I think I was watching the the behind, behind the scenes extras on this, and you know they really do. They want to make another great Bond film, and they. What I was so interested in is that they actually make some changes from the book. Mm-hmm. That because they kind of worried about the political ramifications with the Russians in this story, and they they didn't want it to be so political. So they change Smirsh to Spectre in the book so that it would not offend the Russians. In fact, the British and the Russians are the one being played the whole time by Spectre. And so they both come out kind of looking like idiots. And so either side can't really get upset at that. And I think that's so interesting because for them, as you were saying, this should be a, you know, slam dunk. But they had a really hard time figuring out what this story was going to be the moment that they changed that because they couldn't figure out how to make the plot work. And it wasn't working for a lot of the movie. Yeah. And that's a really good idea, actually. I mean, we look back at it now and we go, okay, well, 1963, this is absolutely the height of the Cold War. We had just come out of uh, the Bay of Pigs crisis only a couple of years before. Um, So, of course, the Russians are the bad guys. Of course they are. But this is actually pretty smart on the uh, on the part of the filmmakers to say, well, let's not make it about a country or a people or a political system. And maybe wisely so, because it's less than three decades later that, well, the Soviet Union crumbles. So now you've got this other menace, this other thing going on in the background that the filmmakers can turn into anything they want. They can make Spectre what ever yes the deal is they want and, and you can give the guy a cat and never exactly, see his face exactly and then the thing that is threatening bond which is the thing that is threatening the world that motivation can change from movie to movie which we we get in this so yeah it, it's kind of nice to see that and actually and in some weird way it almost humanizes the russian side in this you know, which is a pretty uh, progressive thing to do for, again, a movie that came out in 1963, <laughs> you know. And what's interesting is that's that's their thought is we don't want to piss off Russian viewers for money, you know, oh, so it's right. not altruistic. Yeah. It's totally capitalistic. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Good for them, yeah. But what's interesting is that, you know, it is that thing where they realize that, okay, you know, Terrence Young is able to figure out finally if Bond is the pawn in the movie, in this whole chess game, you know, Bond is the pawn, then that's what makes this movie work. That him and the Russians are totally being played by Spectre 
and he knows he's along for the ride. He's just hoping he can survive the ride. And I think that does wonders for one, the James Bond character, but it also really keeps the the Bond woman, Tatiana, from being somebody who's just being used by Bond here because she's working to use him. Like everybody's working to use each mm-hmm. other. And it makes the character stronger, I think, than the other way around. So they really found something that accentuated the storyline, helped the characters, and made it a much better story, I think, with what they came out of. Now, I don't think I've read most of From Russia With Love, so I can't comment on the book. But the way they are able to make some changes here for the film, it ends up working very well. I, I agree. I agree to an extent. I, I think that um, Tatiana, Tanya, is, is a terrific character, and she's more complex than than just the damsel in distress. We'd be doing her a huge disservice if we just said that's all she is. I like the idea that um, they kind of play with her loyalties. I like the idea that um, she is somebody on a mission. Um, so I like all those things about here. Now, now what I didn't like, or maybe didn't buy, and maybe I need to go back and watch it again, um, after kind of letting this sit for a little while is that I'm sort of missing the point of motivation for her when, when things change, we're introduced to a character who is doing everything for mother Russia and, and she dare not cross Rosa Klebb, <laughs> you know? So all of this makes great sense. But there's something about her motivation that changes ultimately. And I think if you were to make, and this is a whole other show, maybe women at Warp should do this, <laughs> but this is a whole other show to talk about, you know, <laughs> feminist, feminist critique, feminist criticism of this movie. You know, she changes because she falls in love with Bond. Now, she also figures out that she's being played. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah. you know, that, that is part of it too. But, but there's something in this is a little bit of that fantasy fulfillment. Like, okay, again, the good looking urbane tough guy stepped into the picture, makes love to her a couple of times and, oh, well, of course her loyalty is going to change now <laughs> because that happened. Um, so the, there is a little something about that that plays a little false, um, but I certainly don't discredit Daniela Bianchi for that I think she makes a lot out of this character and like you're saying I think this they they were able to make a lot out of this character for this movie more so than probably was on the page um so well done in that respect yeah no I definitely think it's a good time to to jump into the women and the villains of the Mm. film um and you know I think you you kind of hit where I was was thinking of is one is that she does find out that she's been betrayed uh, by her Russian counterparts. Uh, I think that really kind of helps tip the scales for her because uh, she thought that she was doing this for for Mother Russia and realizes that that's not the case. And I I think that she ends up feeling that she is played. What I love before that is the way that she is playing a role to play Bond, Mm -hmm. you know? So she's playing the dutiful woman who's supposed to be in love with him and all to, to try and fool him uh, and, and to get him to do what her and club want so that they can steal this lector, you know, uh, and make sure that it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And, so I, I I like that part of her character. I think that's where she get it. It 
the strength comes from. It is an interesting thing when the change happens. And is it just because, you know, Bond is Bond, which that we'll talk about when we get to (laughs) Goldfinger, uh, because it is definitely the case there. But this one, I definitely think that on a whole, they give her a lot more motivation for making the Mm -hmm. turn than they say do with, you know, uh, Goldfinger for sure. There's something about her that is a trope anyway. Just from the very beginning. And and maybe, again, it's a little bit unfair because here we are in 2016 looking at a movie made in 1963. But there's something about the trope of the beautiful, exotic, blonde agent who is put up to this job of seducing this character, seducing this guy. Because every male in the audience is putting themselves in the shoes of James Bond. I want to be James Bond oh, wait, this beautiful woman, it's her job to come on to me and sleep with me? Oh, of course. You know, I can see the wheels turning in Ian Fleming's head to come up with that, you know? So, so again, it's a really tricky thing that, <laughs> that, like I said, on paper, this is really, wow, you just go, man, that is a two-dimensional thing if I ever saw one. But they make the most out of it here, and they, they're able to give a third dimension to this character rather than just being that, even if we start out from that place. Yeah, because it is interesting, especially, you know, jumping to the end of the film when she makes the, the she's the one who saves Bond. Mm. Like, I, I kind of like that, you know, she's the one who ends up saving him uh, from Cleb. And it's interesting because they've both been kind of playing this cat and mouse game with each other. Mm. And yet I do think that by that point in the story there, they had actually kind of grown to have a care for each other, which was nice because they've been through all these things together. And that's another thing that the film does. If you're watching carefully, they go through a lot of stuff together, you know, and uh, he feels betrayed by her. She feels betrayed by him and they realize that they're both being played and all this kind of stuff. And it, there is a, there is a lot of depth the more you watch the film. And so that's the one thing that I really like. And I think, you know, what's wonderful about her too, is that she is just that classic bond woman Mm -hmm. in the sense that she is gorgeous and wonderful, but this is one who definitely has something more going for her then say, well, again, I'm going to reference Goldfinger when we get there, and she really is just the pretty thing that Bond's going to dangle himself at, and she's going to immediately change sides. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, like, yep. it, at least Tatiana doesn't have that issue. And I think that's one of the things that makes it for a stronger film, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, because they don't do that yet. Right. Um, and it'll definitely... <laughs> that's where... Uh, yeah, that trope luckily doesn't come into play <laughs> until Goldfinger. So, <laughs> right, right. but now she's she's really wonderful and a beautiful actress. So I, I think she plays the role um, very well, uh, and especially for somebody who does not speak English, mm-hmm. that's not her first language. Um, and you know, she uh, was a beauty queen. Yeah. That I mean, she was a beauty pageant winner. Yeah. Uh, so Italian beauty pageant winner. So acting is not her first 
role in life, you know? So I, I think she does a, a good job for somebody that they literally just went to beauty pageants and stuff looking for women to be in these roles. They weren't worried about whether they could act or yeah, not. Yeah, <laughs> she was a, uh, you know, Italian Miss Universe in 1960, I believe. And um, it, here she is an Italian playing a Russian speaking English throughout this movie yeah so uh quite a good job <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it is a big yeah. switch <laughs> yeah well, what did you think of the character of club because that is a very uh interesting layered and, and kind of a, a strangely nuanced character and when you think about it i mean she is high up in specter so specter doesn't have any issues with having women you know in certain roles in it you prove yourself they'll give you the job yeah, wow. Um, Lata Lenya, so definitely would have been well known to an audience in 1963 because she already had this huge career um, leading up to that. So th this would have been sort of like the guest starring role in the movie. It would have you know, made a big deal out of this. Um, by the way, and her, her name is uh, mentioned in the you know English lyrics version of Mac the Knife. So if you listen to the Bobby Darren version from 1959, you're going to hear mm -hmm. her name called out. Yeah, so here's a terrific character. You've got to have this just tough as nails, dangerous. You buy her danger from the moment she comes on screen, which I think is a lot of fun. And um, you sort of don't know exactly where it's going to go. So I like that payoff at the end. I like introducing the uh, the, the poison-tipped boot knife uh, that she wears in those sort of horrible orthopedic shoes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> apparently that was a real weapon that uh, that the Russians had at the time. So this was sort of ripped from the headlines and, and put in there. Um, you know, it, it's... It, this is another character that's a little unfair to just call her two-dimensional because she's a blast to watch and you don't really expect or demand more out of her than to be menacing. Um, but she's great in every scene. She owns every scene that she's in. Um, that first sort of interrogation with Tanya, uh, where she's telling her the mission. She's just great. She's like the, she's like the nun in the Blues Brothers. You know, slapping the, <laughs> the cracking the ruler on the <laughs> desk. You know, um, she also reminded me of she had a Silva vibe mm. from Skyfall. You know, where she's like you're not sure about her sexuality yeah, and stuff. I mean, yeah. like she's, she's just so unexpected to Tatiana right. that she doesn't know what to do. Like she's totally put her off her spy yes, game, yes. you know? So I, I think the, the role there, she just, she owns it and she's in those Coke bottle yeah, glasses right, too. Like right. she's menacing in Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it. She's great. And you know, the thing is that's such an iconic character that then I, like I said on the last time, the Austin Powers movies are every bit a James Bond movie as a James Bond movies yep. because they are the most literate James Bond parodies there are out there. And you have to have Rosa Klebb in order to have that same character show up in the Austin Powers movie and have the audience get it, just get it right away. Oh, this is who we're making a parody of, you know, so good. I like her character because I think that... What's nice is that you do feel that she is a legitimate foil for what Bond is doing, mm -hmm. you know, like, 
And uh, yeah, she's one of those villains too. In the end, she's the one who gets her hands dirty to try and take out Bond. At the end, I, that's that's and, cool. And you get the idea that even people in Spectre think she's a little unhinged. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yes. I kind of love that too. Yeah. Yeah, that was great because they she has that scene with uh, Kornstein yes. and uh, Blofeld, yes. and she's watching the fish, mm. you know, fight back and forth and like looking at them with like almost this weird fascination right. as they try and eat each other alive. And, oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I love, too, I mean, you've got Robert Shaw playing uh, Red Grant, Donald Grant, uh, in the film. And this guy is, again, he's the same thing as uh, Club in the sense that he's only meant to be menacing and the bad guy. But the scenes that he has with Connery where they're talking back and forth on the train are so well done, you know, because he's a guy who knows his stuff. And for the most time he has the upper hand mm-hmm. uh, until bond is able to change it with a gadget. But otherwise bond wouldn't have been able to get out of that. You know what I love is that he did not speak until so much further into the movie. Yes, they introduce yes. him. He's just this hulking mass of muscle, <laughs> and um, John, you don't have to talk oh, about. Okay, me well, like you're that, right here you. in front of me, so you know. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Thought of you when I saw that. He's introduced that way, and you know that he's dangerous. Uh, like that, that's not even in question that that he's dangerous, and he's going to be a formidable uh, adversary for Bond. Um, although I, I, I think I read correctly that he was on an Apple box through most of his scenes with Connery because he's a lot shorter than Connery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh, but, but they funny. played it well, you know, you, you definitely believe. Yeah. You never yeah. know. I mean, I, well, I mean, he has bond on his knees for so much of the scene that they're right. in. So you would never know right. that Connery's right. taller. <laughs> but, but I think it's so great that he doesn't talk until we get him in the scenes where he actually has to talk to bond. There's something great about that because, A, you don't know if the voice that he's using is purely the put-on for that character of playing that agent that he's supposed to be when he first meets Bond. So I think that's brilliant. And the other thing is it sort of gives an air of mystery that he is just this sort of machine, this homicidal machine that gets Mm, turned on for the moment that he's needed in the mission. So he can do these things like a psychopath would, like pass in normal society <laughs> you know get the job done and then somehow he just sort of you know reappears back at the training camp for specter until he's needed again or something he's like the dexter right? james yes, bond yes there's something really creepy about that wonderful and and uh he's awfully good in this uh robert shaw well and I, I what i think is is great is that he is somebody who is formidable for bond physically you know, so that you do feel like that when they have their fight, that, that there's a real danger mm-hmm. for whether or not Bond will be able to come out the other side. Okay, yeah. right. Uh, so I think they 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 picked the, the right person, and like you said, what's great about him is you never know who he is. Like you you know, you don't know what he sounds like. You don't know any of that. He's just this super creepy character Mm -hmm. that comes into the movie to do one thing and that's to take out bond and it's it works so well you know it sets up a fantastic bond trope here with 
this yeah. character. Well, it, you know, he does, again, set the stage for all those other henchmen, those superhuman henchmen that come after him. And it's funny that you mentioned that the Bond gadget in this movie is the only way that Bond survives that fight scene. Um, and that also became a Bond trope where it's the, the Q gadget that just happens to be the right gadget used in exactly the right way for that mission that allows Bond to survive. Now, what I thought would be funny is that when Grant shows up and dispatches with the other agent that M sent, obviously he collected that guy's briefcase. And I thought that if he had been really anxious before he got on the train, really wanted to see what was in there, he would have opened the briefcase in the bathroom. <laughs> the powder would have gone off in his face and the train would have left and be miles down the road at that point. <laughs> you know, Yep. no, yep. no need to worry about Grant. Yeah. That or that what happens in the Bond movie where Q doesn't give you just the right gadget, <laughs> right. you know, like he gives you the exploding talcum powder and what you really needed was, really need the you laser know, watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But you didn't give right. you the laser watch. So right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really see Kornstein, the the chess master and the person who's created this plot a whole mm -hmm. lot. But I think he's a really interesting character because, you know, the whole plot is based off of somebody who thinks they can think of all of the different ramifications of mm -hmm. actions. And Bond is the wild card, you know, that you just can't plan yeah. on. And those two going up against each other. And so they never have screen time together, but they're the ones at odds the whole time. And I like that. I think it's really, really interesting to watch them, to see the Maverick play and, you know, the calculator play and which one is well, going to win. It is sort of the great setup and the great metaphor for everything in the spy game is that you have to be thinking a step ahead or five steps ahead of your opponent. And, and I love how we're introduced to that character. First of all, gorgeous set for... Oh, fantastic oh, set. It's like a $100,000 yeah. set they just did for a few days yeah, of shooting. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. A movie that cost $2 million to make and over a hundred grand spent on that chess tournament set is absolutely gorgeous. What a way to introduce the movie. What a way to introduce this guy. And that he gets the note from Spectre. You're needed. <laughs> Your presence is required <laughs> immediately. water glass. Under the water glass. First of all, I would miss that completely. I would, be, I would be a very bad agent. I would not see that. I would just finish the water and continue with the game. But I love the subtlety of introducing the fact that he is ahead by so many steps because he can wrap up that game instantly and be done with it. Um, it is absolutely a, a brilliant piece of writing to tell the audience so much with so little. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like everything about this. I, I like that again, we're bringing in multiple nationalities here to build this web of specter that goes above and beyond just the political structure of the West versus the East or, you know, England versus the Soviet Union. Um, so it's a, like you said, a crucial character, um, that I think they let you know just enough about. Yeah, they don't, they don't overdo it they don't oversell it it i i think what what's so strange is we were talking about earlier them trying to figure out the script and having a very hard time with all of this that so much of this movie comes out so well mm -hmm. and so a character like this it plays uh and they actually had to reshoot that scene 
and uh, Peter Hunt had to actually take the scene with uh, Cleb and comp it and cut around her, and then they reshot the scenes with her so she could have different dialogue. Mm. But then they backlit the the frame so that they had the what was there before to create this because you know uh, it was just fantastic what they were trying to do to make all of this yeah. work. And again, the character comes off. And so, uh, you know, the last, the, the you know, kind of the main person that we have, we get introduced to is number one. And that's what he's referred to as. Uh, he's the chief of Spectre, you know, Bond's nemesis. We'll find out later he's Blofeld. But here it's just number yeah. one. And, I mean, the voice work by Eric Pullman mm. uh, is just butter it's fantastic you know it's like so smooth so creepy all at the same time it's it's just wonderful uh and what a great addition to all of filmdom to create this type of villain where you don't see their face it's the faceless villain only a you know a, a disenfranchised voice from mm-hmm. a face and you know that this is the dude you do not want to piss <laughs> off. Well, yeah, there's something great about that, that's sort of the efficiency of filmmaking. You know, uh, we, we've had this conversation before where I feel like a lot of times um, you have a hit movie or a hit TV show or whatever, and then the, the reaction is, well, next time it'll be bigger and better. We'll double the budget. You'll have double the number of bad guys, double the number of car chases and explosions. And this is one of those choices to underplay something, to just let the menace of Blofeld, who, like you said, doesn't even have a name at this point, but just let the menace of number one be explained to the audience through the reactions of the other people around him. And the less we see about him, the better he is because the more our imaginations take over. It's a brilliant move. And Again, so iconic, so perfectly played that every Bond parody after it has to have a cat. And now seeing a white cat in somebody's hands is it's shorthand for here's the bad guy in charge. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it's 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 wonderful. Yeah. Um and it's funny you say that you were talking about it, like, we'll double the budget. They gave this movie mm-hmm. more money. But what's wonderful is that you only feel that for the most part, I think, in just the production value. Yeah. You know, they're able to go to some pretty exotic locations and, and stuff like that. But other than that, y- you don't feel like they're just completely trying to do that thing where we're just going to ramp everything up without any thought process to it. We're just going to put more and hope war is better. Uh, not Roger Moore, <laughs> but just, just more. And I, I think that... What they do here, and maybe it's because they had so many issues behind the scenes with filming and especially story-wise, that there is something about them putting it all together through the editing process that really maybe changed that. I don't know. But that is really interesting because this is a a movie that has a troubled shoot. Al Karembe, uh, Pedro... Amarandez, I think is how you would say his last mm-hmm. name, and so forgive me. Uh, they found out pretty early in the production that uh, he had cancer, yeah. and um, they rush for two weeks to film all of the scenes with him before he passes away. And and the dedication of this man, 
who wanted to finish this film because he was try he knew he was not going to live and he was trying to take care of his family. Yeah. And there are scenes where they're literally propping him up from behind to keep him standing. And it's just it's fantastic because honestly, you can't tell. Yeah. Even after watching this, I could not tell that he was sick. It was it's an amazing performance. Well, uh, what's so great? The character is so full of life and is so mm-hmm. full of sort mm-hmm. of this this good-natured sort of uh, bon vivant attitude about the, the business, <laughs> as he says, you know, the job that he's yes. in. Um, <laughs> you, you don't have a Felix Leiter in this movie, but I feel like they, they wanted somebody to be Bond's compatriot, uh, maybe not his equal, but but somebody to, to sort of complete the pieces that Bond has to have here. So if it's not Felix Leiter, it's somebody like this. And um, you can tell that he's having fun in this. And there's something really admirable about um, uh, about Pedro here going through this shoot, knowing what he knew, and certainly something very admirable about the filmmakers getting this out of him and, and letting him work and letting him earn the money because he wanted to take care of his family, as you said. Um, it is a really unforgettable performance. Um, he is really so full of life in this movie, and it's absolutely tragic that it was only weeks after this was completed that he passed away, so he never saw uh, never saw the completed movie. But he's a lot of fun. You absolutely can't forget him. Um, the, the fact that the character dies in the movie is tragic already because Bond has done that a couple of times in other movies where they sort of build your sympathy and your care for another character before they dispatch him. But that's how they drive home and heighten the drama for Bond. Um, and in this, it, it's played very well to that purpose. Um, but yeah, boy, what a, what a lot of fun he is in this. I love the the character. And like you said, I, I the life. And it's so strange that as this is, is being filmed, you know, he is slowly losing everything in his life. Uh, that his life is being taken from yeah. him. Uh, it's just kind of leeching out, and yet, again, he he gives such a great, wonderful performance that it's it's indelible. You know, uh, I think he really does set up, you know, as the Felix Leiter type character, the the person that Bond will have in so many of his films to help him. You know, whether it's Felix or somebody else. Uh, throughout the movies and uh, I I love the character he's he's just so much fun and you know he takes Bond to the craziest places like a gypsy camp and things like that to keep him quote-unquote safe even though they end up getting attacked there because they're being followed and you know just wonderful wonderful uh, performance and uh, the fact that all of his security is handled by his sons because what's better security than family right that that's a fun thing to to have a running gag like that through through the movie is um is really nice well it's it's crazy too because not only does that happen to this production but Terrence Young the director is in a helicopter crash mm-hmm. and they have to save him i mean he's legitimately 40 50 feet underwater um, where the helicopter is crashed and they have to go down and save him. Talk about adding insult to injury. You know, first he's in a yeah. helicopter crash, but then he survives that and almost drowns. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and, and what was so incredible was the fact that 
he goes on filming yeah. that day as if nothing happened. Yeah. yeah. It's it's insane. No. It's incredible. I, there's no way I could do that. I would need to be, you know, locked away in a in a, you know, small dark room with a bottle of scotch for about the next 12 hours of my life. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, just being thankful yeah, I was right, alive, right. you know. I, well, and then our our bond woman Daniela, she is in a car mm-hmm. crash. So things just keep happening on this yeah. shoot. And it is a miracle, really, I think, that this film turns out the way that it does. And what was interesting to me, John, about this movie is there's a slight heightened realism to it because there's some of the things that we'll get that do feel a little bit fantastical, like having a periscope <laughs> in the uh, enemy's right, lair. Right. Uh, although not completely out of care i mean it's not it's not completely ridiculous um because the especially the way they describe why it was put there and how it was put there and all that um you know it's it's not an invisible car so but there's also this kind of rawness to this film that continues from the first movie uh and the fact that you know you get scenes of bond checking his room looking for bugs doing actual spy things you know he knows this is a trap. So they're continuing to try to find out who's behind all of this. I think that's really interesting. And then this movie has a brutality that we won't see for quite a while in the Bond films. Uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, maybe, and for her eyes, for your eyes only, are, and then Dalton are probably the only times that we'll get something this violent. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, one of the things we talked about when we talked about Dr. No is just how beautiful to look at that movie is. It is so full of Mm -hmm. color and it is so sort of candy coated and shiny. It's amazing to look at, particularly if you look at the Blu-ray release, because the restoration of that is so incredible. This movie, again, watching it in HD, there's a lot of detail, but it's a different kind of detail. Because you're in totally different locations. There, there is no, you know, tropical paradise to come back to. You're in Turkey and, you know, there's all these dark scenes that are full of detail. And particularly being on the train, when you're on the Orient Express, it's so confined. You know, you, you sort of appreciate mm-hmm. the, the beauty of the space, the woodwork and all of that stuff. But you're in this confined, tight room. And you know that whatever goes down there is going to be dangerous, <laughs> you know, Yeah, the, that fight scene, which again, sets the stage where every fight scene bond has ever had in a train ever since he, you, you got to come back to that every now and then you feel like you're missing out of a bond movie. Doesn't have that, but, uh, that it, it does, it, it lends that sense of realism to this. And that's the real trick. That's a real balancing act for this. So even if you don't buy the idea of, Spectre being able to pull these strings, being able to manipulate people the way that they can manipulate people. Even if you're not buying that part, you're buying the reactions of the people in the real world to that. You're buying the concerns that Bond has. You're buying the way that he carries himself and needs to carry out this mission. So all of those things make it feel real. And even though we do sort of give Bond a pass for having to use a gadget to get out of that fight, um, it feels no less real when he uses that gadget and then has to carry on and still fight this guy, <laughs> you know, absolutely brutally so. Well, and, and that's what I, I really like is that 
even the gadgets, they're in the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't jumped the shark right. yet, right. you know, uh, or given him a, a jetpack, yeah. yeah. you know. Um, so it, it, that there really is a sense of realism still to Bond, which is so wonderful. I think people don't realize that the first two films are so much more down to mm-hmm. earth. And, you know, that fight scene in the train is such, I mean, it is very raw. And in fact, they were actually worried about the violence mm-hmm. in the scene. They were they were worried that, you know, people might be turned off by it because it is a, a fight that feels legitimately violent. Yeah. The, these guys really do look like they're trying to kill each other, and it, it looks awful right. in that sense. It's not a pretty fight. There's nothing... It's just raw man versus mm-hmm. man, and whichever guy can find the upper hand somehow, that's who's going to win. Yeah, um, and, and you know this is another movie like Doctor No that doesn't have just a ton of characters in it. It doesn't have a ton of over the top. You know, we we have those big production moments like the opening with the the chess tournament, but then you bring it back down to a very personal intimate level like you do in that train so that that's pretty great to see even when you get to the end with the boat chase you know that feels like a very real world moment it's not super boats that can turn into airplanes it's it's a boat that bond found because of his you know well the the hookup that he stole from red grant but it is the boat that just happened to be there for that moment that happened to have the fuel tanks on the back. And even the Spectre boats, again, they're not super boats. Um, mm-hmm. It's just guys with guns chasing them. So all of that feels very real and therefore very dangerous. Exactly. Even at the end, there's nothing there that you're like, ah, yeah, you did the thing. And I mean, even the helicopter scene oh, yeah. is fantastic because. Well, one, they're they're actually paying homage to North by Heavily Northwest, for North one of my which I love, favorite which I love. films. Great. Yes, yeah. yes, John, we're gonna have to talk I about know, this right. movie. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it seems realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the guys in the helicopter. They're trying to you know find a way to get the best shot at Bond and scare him all at the same mm-hmm. time. And at the same time, Bond's trying to put together his sniper rifle and take them out you know it's a it's definitely a cat and mouse game they're playing and bond comes on top Mm -hmm. of course but it it doesn't feel unrealistic right and uh i think it it doesn't feel so over the top where they lose you and i I think that's what makes this film so wonderful and that yes there is this slight heightened realism but it's not enough to make you feel like again you've got uh, a group of women flying planes, knocking everybody mm-hmm. out over, you know, we haven't gone yeah. there yet. Yeah. You know, a Goldfinger is going to set a whole new standard for what it meant to be a Bond movie. But this feels much more in the realm of, I guess it's movie spy, but it feels more like a realistic spy for the most part. Well, it's a lot of individual actions. It, it's not requiring a, a leap of belief for you know, massively over-coordinated and over-calculated conspiracy, nor is it forcing you to believe technology that is simply unbelievable. You know, you don't have that element of sort of magic in there. It's just sort of what are the individual actions that these people carry out, um, either according to plan 
or because the plan went wrong and how do they get out of it? So those are the things that make it feel more realistic. Well, and what was so interesting is that behind the scenes, you know, there are some real behind the scenes heroes for the film and it it is Terrence Young coming up with uh, the way to make the story work. And then it's Peter Hunt who is editing this and finding a way to make the edit work. And it's actually him who takes the sequence with quote-unquote Bond being tracked in the garden, moves that to before the credits. He's the Mm. one responsible for making the pre-title credit sequence. And he moves some other things around. He's the one who put the chess scene first and then Club going to find the um, uh, Grant and putting all those scenes together and putting them in the right order to make the storyline flow. It is incredible the way that they worked together to be able to craft something to make a story that wasn't there beforehand. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's the old saying that there are three movies that you make? There's the movie you write, there's the movie you shoot, and there's a the movie you edit. And those are three totally different things. Because by the time you edit it, it's something entirely different from the one that you shot or the one that you wrote. And it, it takes a really skilled filmmaker to be able to make any one of those three good and make sure that the last one that comes out the one that you edit is uh is really tight and is really engaging um and and uh really makes the audience believe what you've what you've put down so that regardless of a you know the little flaws or or the little uh, areas where maybe the suspension of disbelief is not there, then you're still okay with it as a whole. Can you imagine if this film came out today with the ridiculous social media network we have now that blows everything out of oh, proportion yeah. about, oh, Rogue One is going into <laughs> reshoots, the movie's a disaster, the Disney execs hate it. Right. Can you imagine if this film right. had been made then? Star is dying, film is in trouble, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, director almost dies in a helicopter crash. I mean, it would just be awful, yeah, but yeah. what was amazing is that this film comes out the way that it does because everything that does happen here could Mm. have derailed it if it had been different people involved but terrence Mm -hmm. young Mm -hmm. peter hunt the the editor and everyone else involved they keep their head in the game and they create Mm. something and iconic that has some truly great moments in it and um you know we talked about the, the first movie with Dr. No, Sylvia Trench being in the film and the fact that she would only be in one more. I love the fact that Bond has this steady girlfriend back home who yeah. knows yeah. that Bond goes and does other things and probably other people, but they have that very 60s relationship, which very yeah. interesting. And I, I, I like that they went with that at least this time um and it creates a nice sense of continuity between the films oh i i think it's great i mean i think she's a terrific actress anyway and she's fun to watch on screen so i'm i'm so glad that uh that they had her back um we will never see her again no, no. <laughs> in a bond movie <laughs> but uh, but it was a cool and there are a lot of little uh pieces of continuity from Dr. No, but I, I think that's one of the most outstanding ones there. Um, I, I think that's certainly a, a cool moment, a cool thing to have in the movie. Um, there are some weird moments 
I think, in this movie. Um, so we open with, uh, like I said, we have a pre-credit sequence and then we have the credit sequence, which we did not have in Dr. No. So people who have seen all the Bond movies and they go back and watch Dr. No, it has a very different feel because you don't have that familiar pattern and then the big production number for the opening. Well, in this, you have a production number, but the theme song is played without the lyrics. It's the instrumental version of the theme song, and um, which I don't think is weird. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of that, and, and in fact, I liked it when they did it again for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, that, that it's just a purely instrumental track. Um, but what I thought was weird in this movie is playing the vocals version of from Russia with love, not once, but twice in the movie. And it's literally in the yeah, movie, yeah. not just a piece of soundtrack. It's literally occurring in the world of that movie. Yeah. It's like a famous uh, song. You didn't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always amused when movies do that. Well, what I so, love. I mean, I'd forgotten is that, that this is in here. There's the, there's the scene where, Bond is with Trench there by the river and the boat passes them with the radio playing the song. Mm -hmm, he goes mm -hmm. to meet Money Penny and then M and they have their conference and he comes back out and they have their scene. He has the picture of Tatiana, which he signs right. with right. love, but then he adds, you know, from Russia with yeah. love. And so you know where he got the phrase from. Because yeah. he remembered yeah. hearing the song. And so it's just, it's this weird, quirky thing that happens. But if you're paying attention to the little cue, it's actually really funny. Yeah. If, you, if you've gone through the movie now and you've got three times the actual title of the movie is sung or referenced or written in this case in the movie, um, you should probably, if you're in a theater, stand up and give uh, like a soft uh, golf clap at those moments. I, I think it's really critical that we recognize those moments for what they are and we uh, give a tip of the hat to the filmmakers for reminding you of yeah. the title of the movie. <laughs> which yeah. they will try to do in most of the Bond songs, which is where the title mm -hmm. in. Uh, and mm -hmm. a lot of the times try to find a way to work the name of the movie into the, the movie itself mm -hmm. somehow. So yeah, it's... Yep. It, it yep. definitely starts something that will not be in every Bond movie, but they're going to try to work in. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some other fun stuff that we liked here, other great moments. Um, I, I will have to say that, you know, we talked about this movie sort of cementing the formula and figuring out what these Bond movies are going to be like. And one thing that I think they had not quite gotten there with was the witty repartee for Bond. Um the, the the boat chase in the end and and how does bond lead that off uh when he blows up the tanks of fuel where there's smoke there's fire i'm thinking this this is bond being the master of the single entendre <laughs> there's there's nothing clever about that at all it's just saying something for the sake of saying something so there are little moments like that that you think okay we're almost there we've almost got bond nailed down as to you know the kinds of lines that we all have but we're not quite there yet you know we we will find that certainly we'll have a lot more of that in gold well and what's wonderful is there's the wonderful scene when he walks in to the office and he throws his hat mm -hmm. and he turns and he says now for my next miracle and then he realizes right. that m is there and it 
totally throws right, him off his right. game. And it's just so right. funny because there's a lot of interplay between those characters that won't be in the later films in mm-hmm. this, these mm-hmm. little small scenes. And I really, really like the way that they're kind of building that relationship between these three. Uh, yeah. And the way that they do work together, I think it um, it does it, it's something special in this movie, particularly uh, that that really stood out to me, and especially as well when Bond does come out of M's office and he's talking to Many Penny. I was very shocked because I forgot how intimate their scene gets. Because if they had not been mm-hmm. interrupted by M, mm-hmm. it does seem like they have a relationship that goes beyond just the playing at the office because it does look like they are going to start necking on the desk. Yeah. Well, and, and I tell you what I love about that because when you circle back around to the reboots, the the Daniel Craig movies, and you sort of justify then the types of relationships that Bond has with them and with Moneypenny, it then allows you to justify in your mind or at least rebuild this backstory of who Bond and Money mm-hmm. Penny yeah. meant to each other, what they meant to each other from 1962 and 1963. So I, I think that's terrific. Yeah. It is the weirdest circle in film that mm-hmm. what we have come through with the Bond films. I, mm-hmm. I really love that. Um, there's another great scene uh, with with M and Money Penny. They're listening to the recording that Bond has made, and he makes this wonderful reference to some mission that him and M were on together, and apparently yeah. M has a wild side. Yes, I love that, that that one night in Tokyo. Yeah. Man. So, but again, you know, you circle that back around to the Bond who we got to know again mm-hmm. in the yep. Craig movies, and the M who we are getting to know again um the the ray fines version who was an agent mm-hmm. and he's been out there he has, in the field. Yeah. so now you get it now you get it it really works well yeah. and especially after you know seeing specter where he was involved in the mission in the end you know he's mm-hmm. he's putting his own life on the line again uh, yeah it's just it it's so much fun going back to the series and and um i love getting to this point because i wanted to talk about what you would rate this movie um, because, you know, coming after Dr. No, I, yeah, this is just such an interesting exercise watching them in this progression. So what do you think, John? So, yeah, like I said, my, my perception of this movie was colored a bit uh, in rewatching it. Um, I feel like because I was putting myself in the shoes of the producer who had just had this shockingly huge hit. <laughs> sort of by accident, you know? So I, I was sort of looking at this thinking, man, they were really trying to build their franchise with this movie. And they were trying to to really make sure that they established the things that would become Bond for the next movie and the one after that and the one after that and the one after that. So there's so much to enjoy here. There's so much that is well played here. There's so much that um, I think what you and I both appreciate in this movie is the ability to do something fantastical and then immediately ground it again, Yeah, which is great. So hard to do, but they they do it so well in this movie. Um, There are things that I think don't play very well. Um, Again, there's this weird sort of... um, 
this weird sort of, you know, early 60s sexist vibe going on where uh, Bond coming into the, uh, the the gypsy camp and he's basically there to watch a cat fight. <laughs> Which know? was interesting because he's uncomfortable with. I he mean, is, he, he is. this is yeah. I mean, he asks for them to stop this fight which i thought was really interesting yes. it said a lot about the character of bond right right but but then how does it end okay it ends with these two girls as prizes again for the tall good-looking white guy from england who wears a great suit you know so there's this weird and kind save of, their you know chief's life you know so yeah 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 but there's this weird sort of uh you know male fantasy fulfillment that's in that 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 it's sort of it's the kind of thing that in a lesser story you would read it in the pages of not not Playboy. It'd be like Argosy magazine from 1963 about the you know the guy who tamed the wild women. Yeah, you know, oh, gosh. <laughs> this is very you know very lurid and and very macho uh, uh, stories that that thankfully have kind of gone away now. You know, but it's very much a product of its time in that respect. Um, so little things like that, you sort of watch through the the eyes of a viewer in 2016 and you think, yeah, this plays a little strangely, <laughs> you know, but so much of what else is happening in this movie, like like you and I agree, it, it grounds it, um, it, it, it makes you care for these characters and they don't overplay things with these characters. You're given just enough. Um, and I think, you know, even with the doubled budget here, they do pull their punches in the right ways so they can really hit you as something important later on in the movie, you know? So, uh, it's just a lot of fun. I was actually surprised at the pacing because the first and second acts, I feel like are really long, but then you are really trying to wrap things up in the third act. Um, so that's a little strange. The pacing is a little different than uh, what you might expect in a in a modern movie. But overall, overall, this really holds up nicely. I think it, I appreciated it more watching it in the order now that I've watched it, studying it in order right after Dr. No uh, as my next viewing of this movie. Like I said, seen it a million times over the years, but never in any particular context like that. Um, I would have, you know, if we're going to rate it, um, I'm just going to go ahead and give it four and a half out of five Lecter machines. That's yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> this is a movie for me that uh, I think over the years has slowly creeped its way up the list of Bond films. Um, you know, I, I think each time I watch it, I become more and more impressed with the quality of the film and how good the movie actually is. And, you know, for me, as we talked about, uh, we, we talked about Dr. No. Dr. No is actually up for me uh, there as well because of just the way in which it sets up the character, the realism of the film, uh, how it actually feels like a good spy movie uh, that's not taking itself so over the top that you can't buy it anymore. And I really feel that in this movie as well. That we're not mm -hmm. doing that mm -hmm. thing where we're we're making it so fantastical that I can't buy it as a viewer anymore. I can't really put myself actually in that place to actually be able to do those things. You know, we haven't got to that point with Bond yet, and that's what I think makes From Russia With Love and Dr. No so special is that 
yes, you can put yourself in the place of Bond because Bond isn't a superhuman yet. You know, Bond's not a right. god yet of of you right. know, that nothing can happen to. And this film has a wonderful story that makes complete sense. You know, mm-hmm. okay, so uh, <laughs> as we get on, on into the Bond films, that might be a problem later on. Uh, we'll we'll figure it out. But uh, this one, it makes complete sense in it. What's wonderful is how they use Spectre to play them off, you know, off of each other and everything. And I, I just I really like the characterizations of what we get with Bond, Satyana, I, I, as we talked about with the villains all having very good, interesting motivations. Uh, I think it makes it fun. Obviously, Spectre is just evil because it's evil. That's one mm-hmm. of those things that we have to let go. But all in all... I'd say that I am right there with you. I believe that, oh goodness, I, I think for me, this is five out of five, you know, martini glasses. It, it's just, nice. it is a really wonderful film. And I am there with you too. There are some things, obviously, when we look at the movie through the lenses of 2016, there are some vast differences by how things, you know, look just society-wise, but for the most part, I think this movie has one of the most respectful Bond women in the sense that we actually yeah. give her something to do. She's not just a damsel in distress. She has a lot better motivations than we get in a lot of the other Bond women. And um, like Honey Rider, she, there's something about her that, again, just feels more realistic than just the overblown sex goddess that bond gets to mm-hmm. sleep with and move on you know that's not the thing yep. here so yeah this is this is a wonderful bond movie and i love going back to it and for me ranks very high on my bond list so if anybody's on letterboxd there online you can check out my bond list and uh it's way up there so i don't want to give a list away because it'll give away some of the other films that we'll be covering uh <laughs> down the line but I love, I love, I love, John, getting to talk these films with you because I know that you're always going to come in and you've got so much research that you've done and, and we're getting to, as you said, you know, it's been a very long time since I've watched the films in this order. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to get to do this is just as much a joy for me to kind of see how the icon becomes the icon and Great. Bond is something very special. I love it, man. I cannot wait to do the yeah. next one. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Well, we get to do that. We got Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, who are our associate producers here through Patreon. Really appreciate those guys. Um, you know, Trek FM is a massive undertaking. And without you, the listener, we cannot make this happen. Uh, we just cannot afford to put out over 20 different shows and special feeds without your help. And so the best way to help the network, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. And you can see how you can help us keep all of the content coming to you each and every week. Uh, You can support us at any level that you can, uh, from $1 to however much you'd like to do per month. Any little bit definitely helps us keep this coming to you. So just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can make that happen. And John, it again, it's it's wonderful to have you back on the show here. Uh, Ruby serving up the martinis. Just keep them coming. 
We appreciate it. Uh, let everybody know, of course, where they can find you. And uh, you do have some uh, presence there here on the network. I'm happy to. Yeah, we're proud that Mission Log is carried by Trek FM. So uh, my show, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, can be found at missionlogpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, Mission Log Pod. And we're talking about Star Trek, but uh, every single iteration of star trek there is every episode every movie we're working our way through as of this recording we're nearly wrapping up season four of the next generation good times uh is there anywhere else john that uh, people can find you uh online or on twitter if they'd want to talk to you about some bond or some star trek yeah, well, I mean, for Star Trek, definitely Mission Log Pod. But if you want to talk about something else, DVD Geeks is my Twitter account. DVD Geeks. Uh, look for the icon that's uh, right now Napoleon Solo. Mm, which is so strange because <laughs> I thought it was just you for a while. And then I, I had to look very closely to figure out it wasn't. You've never seen us in the same room at the same that time, have so you? That is so true. That is so true. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's good to meet you, Napoleon. <laughs> 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 Don't blow my cover. <laughs> you know, the listeners will appreciate this. But, John, you know, after we did the um, episode last year where we talked about the man from Uncle, my father in law and my mother in law, they live close to my wife and I, and they love oh, the show. So we've slowly been watching through the series with them, and we're still in oh, season great. one. But I love getting to watch that old Uncle TV oh. show. It's fantastic. So if nobody's seen yeah. it before, uh, one, check out our, our coverage of uh, Man from Uncle that just came out last year. But check out the original show because it's a blast. Yeah, please do. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> well, everybody can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine. Uh, I know John is... You, you all are going to get there. I, just, I, I feel it. One day. Um, one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> you'll be at Deep Space Nine. Um, I also do literary treks with Dan and Bruce about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We interview the authors. Uh, we were so excited that uh, recently one of the authors got named to the writing staff of Star Trek, the new series, Kirsten Byer. So you can check out all of her episodes that we've done on the show. I do a small show uh, and just a great show with my friend John Mills where we talk about Star Wars. Check that out at Aggressive Negotiations. And, of course, you can find that on The Nerd Party. You can also find us on iTunes. Such a blast. And really appreciate everybody being here, listening to the show. Thank you so much for taking your time out to listen to us talk about Bond or whatever else we talk about here on the 602 Love means the world to me. And y'all come back now, you hear? From Russia with love I fly to you Much wiser since my goodbye to you